Ritual Terracotta Vase, circa 440 BCE. Artist unknown. This item was discovered during one of Annabelle Godfrey's many trips to the Mediterranean. Standing at nearly six feet tall, many have speculated as to what the ritual use of this item may have been. Because, of course, if something is old, beautiful, and well-preserved, it must have been used for ceremonial purposes. Dumb luck has absolutely nothing to do with antiquities surviving across millennia. The prevailing theory is that it was used in funerary rites, though others speculate that it could have also played a part in marriage ceremonies. When presented with these two possible conclusions, Annabelle famously replied only half-joking, What's the difference? Annabelle, though a committed partner to the various loves throughout her life, never married. But Annabelle cherished it, not only for its beauty, but because it depicts what was one of her favorite stories from the Greek mythological canon, the tale of Cassandra. On the obverse side, Cassandra, a princess of Troy and priestess of Apollo, the god of, among other things, light, truth, and prophecy, is ambushed by her patron deity. He corners her within the temple as she prays to him. As the tale goes, Apollo had grown infatuated with the devoted young priestess, and much like his father, Zeus, he tried to force himself upon the object of his desire in the regrettable pattern that so many Greek gods were guilty of, in forgetting that the objects of their desire were, in fact, human beings with thoughts and feelings and agency. Apollo predictably forgets this fact and grows enraged when Cassandra, kneeling in supplication before him, refuses his advances and his demands that she give her body over to him and his carnal desires. Towering over her, consumed by fury, he issues his famous curse upon her, to forever see the future, yet to never have her prophecies be believed. On the reverse side, on the reverse side, <clears throat> kindly move to the other side of the vase. It is a freestanding display for this very reason. Thank you. On the reverse side, Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo and the goddess of, among other things, the wilderness, the hunt, and young women, appears behind her errant brother in a brilliant flash of light and wrestles him to the ground, and, as the story goes, shames him for his despicable deed. You would betray the faith and trust that this young woman has put in you? You would betray her and abuse the mighty power that you wield? For shame, brother, for shame! Artemis, in turn, uses her own considerable power to turn her brother's curse back onto himself. From that moment on, Apollo would, for the rest of his godly life, prophesize the future, yet never be believed. Not even by Artemis, the sister who had put the curse upon his head. Accounts of the futures that Apollo saw differ from retelling to retelling, but all agree that whatever it was that he was doomed to witness, it drove him mad. But most sources concur that he saw the inevitable fate belonging to all gods, who are ultimately at the mercy of humankind's fickle beliefs. Most agree he bore witness to the diminishing of himself and all his kin, as the slow ages passed and their names and power faded into the simple, harmless magic of folklore and fantasy. Faded into nothing more than a story, told in clay and ink. Attention Godfrey guests, an update on the restroom situation. All restrooms on the premises continue to reject gendered labels. 
though the staff have confirmed that the formerly family, now single restrooms are in fact accessible by individuals. Relationship or marital status play no factor in a patron's access to those facilities. We do, however, apologize to those here with young children and anyone else requiring the extra room or privacy. We are fully aware of the inconvenience that this causes and as such are prioritizing this particular part of the conundrum. Thank you for your continued patience in this matter. Regarding the multi-person restrooms, simply switching the signs on the doors has proved futile, as the restroom interiors just swap places again as soon as the new signs are affixed to the doors. Some staff members have even reported the sound of disembodied gleeful snickering echoing within the restrooms when they check on the results of the experiment. One particular restroom has proven especially troublesome. Before it was even properly attached, the new sign catapulted off of the door and straight out the nearest window. Please stay clear of this area until further notice, as the custodial staff are still cleaning up the broken glass. The next plan of action is to test what happens when an entirely irrelevant sign such as that for a utility closet is placed upon the restroom doors instead. Our staff are optimistic that this may solve the current predicament, though acknowledge that the trick may only succeed in filling the restrooms with mops, brooms, and other cleaning supplies. We will continue to provide updates as the situation develops. The Battle, 1947. Remedios Varro, Oil on Canvas. Remedios Varro was a master of the Surrealist movement. Though a lesser-known artist in her day, her skills rivaled any and all of her more famous contemporaries. That skill is on full display in the painting before you, in an exemplary exhibition of Varro's talent and imagination. She drops the viewer into the middle of a heated battle. A castle or some other sort of stone fortification perches atop a craggy cliff face. The slender barrels of guns protrude from the fortress's arrow slits, their charges rocketing down the sheer face of the cliffs, their payloads hoping to strike the creatures clawing their way up, up, up to the walls and the guns above and the castle beyond. There are three of them, three dragon-like creatures, all spiked ridges and harsh angles and wide, wild eyes. At least one dragon, the centered one of the three, possesses a pair of wings. At first glance, these dragons seem small to the viewer's eyes, though that may just be a trick of the painting's perspective. The viewer looks up at the castle and the foreboding, stormy sky beyond it just as the dragons do. Could it be that these creatures' immensity and their power are belied in this rendition of whatever scene is playing out before you? For why such virulence in the castle's defenses if these dragons were not capable of posing a real threat? Why enlist what appears to be all available firepower to defeat what, from the perspective being shown, is a tiny and insignificant threat to the reinforced stone, and the technological marvel of gunpowder that guards the people loading the artillery on the walls. Consider this question. Whose castle is it that sits atop the mountain? Varro provides no context for the scene beyond the title of the painting. It is a battle, yes, but the stakes, the players, the odds are all unknown. The gunfire, though plentiful, goes wide as if those who pull the trigger maintain a desperate and tenuous position and therefore take any shots that they can get, however cheap, however low, as if all they understand is brute force and the power required to wield it. And so they fire off as much ammunition as they can, not caring for the carnage they may leave in their wake. 
The dragons scale a perilous cliff face, even though at least one of them could, in theory, fly away to safety. The dragon's eyes are wide, but fixed upon the castle above, and not the drop below. There is no time to look down at the worst possible outcome. Doing so would only slow their ascent to the fortress above, and there is no time to waste. They appear sure-footed upon the rocks, despite the best efforts of the projectiles raining down upon them, as if they know the natural foundations upon which the artificial structure above them was built, as if they are reclaiming what is their own, their home which has been usurped and transformed by hostile forces into something inhospitable. For would not the sound of guns startle and scare away a creature with any weaker tie to this place, with any less of a stake in its future? But the dragons do not run. Regardless of their size, small or large, they do not run from the onslaught before them, and inch by inch they drag themselves toward the reclaiming of their goal, their home as it was once dreamt of, not the source of terror and violence it has become. Varro gives no ending to the story she painted, only the bitter struggle of its middle. What ending do you imagine? What would you do to make it so? Thank you for listening to the Godfrey Audio Guide. This episode was written, produced, and performed by Nicole Knudsen, with sound design and editing by James Ferrero. Enjoying your trip to the estate? To keep up with the Godfrey, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Godfrey Guide. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcasting app of choice. If you're interested in becoming a sustaining member of the show, make sure to visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thegodfreyaudioguide. In addition to our various membership tiers, you'll also find full episode transcripts for any who wish to read them. Until next time, friends, see you back at the museum. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.